Hello, and welcome back to the Sitcom Club. John and myself, Gary, is Tilt. Hello. Now, it's been a while. It's been almost nine months, and we actually haven't spoken in all that time. So, first of all, Happy New Year to you, and who are you anyway? Nobody really wants a list of excuses why we didn't come back when we thought we'd come back. So let's just say we're back and we decided, as it's been such a long time, let's look at something that might pique people's interest. Let's look at something that has high name recognition. And we should point out as well that with either our sitcom club or our Jaffaville or Jaffa Cakes or Jukebox hats on, then we are here till the end of the year. So yes, stay tuned. And Quick plug, straight away, do follow us. If you're not already following us, follow us on Twitter. We're at The Sitcom Club. You can find us, Sitcom Club, on Facebook as well. And you can find all of our previous shows at podnose.com. And yeah, we're going to have a nice eclectic sort of mix over the next few weeks and months, aren't we? Oh yeah, and also Sitcom Club, different rules. Explicit tag on iTunes so I can say whatever I like. And I will. I've got Roger's Profanosaurus with me. And I shall be opening it up at various times and selecting random words. So... Heidi High. Heidi High. I'm not going to do it. Oh, come on. It's obvious. No, just, cue. just pretend I'm being Barry here. <laughs> Barry's a great character. I get He's the fabulous. feeling Barry Howard was not 100% thrilled with the job that he had to do. Okay, so here's the thing about this, because there are a lot of episodes of Heidi High. There are 50... Was it 50, is it 59 episodes? Is that right? It's over nine series. It runs from January... 1980, New Year's Day, all the way through to 1988. And we watched a selection. So I sort of curated a selection of episodes because I'd recently done an entire rewatch because I got the DVDs last year. And so I'd seen them all in order. And so I selected episodes from across the various series. I think your original plan was that you were going to pick 12 representative episodes and it was about 30. It was, yes. That's fine. That's fine. You know, let's not do quarter measures when we can do half measures what do you think the reputation of Heidi High is out there among the British television viewing public I think it's still very good to be honest it's a little bit of a puzzle that it doesn't get shown quite as often on gold as certain other shows I know that they've had recently they've had a Croft and Perry and Lloyd retrospective going on on gold so they've had a few bits and pieces on there which don't often get a look in. Strangely, and this is something I need to look into, to be honest, because I, I don't have the details in front of me. Uh, but for some reason, if, if you were to ask like, people, okay, what shows do they have on gold? Now, almost certainly the top answer would be Only Fools and Horses, if this was Family Fortunes. And probably Faulty Towers would come second. But I bet you anything, almost everybody you asked would say Dad's Army. And yet Dad's Army has very rarely been on gold in the past 20-odd years. It's been on gold quite a bit over the last, just the last few weeks because of this new David Croft retrospective that I've had going on. But it's a bit of an oddity. You get like little rabbit holes like that, that you just sort of fall down. And for some reason, I don't know what it was. I think it might be BBC Worldwide wanting to sort of hold on to it, possibly. I don't know. But it's still a ratings banker for BBC Two on a Saturday evening. Whatever the reason, I don't know. So alongside Dad's Army, Heidi High has recently been shown on Gold. It's recently been shown on Drama. It also had a couple of runs on the much-missed Afternoon Classics on BBC Two back in 2015 and 2016. But for some reason, it's something that doesn't get 
shown quite as often as other Croft and Perry shows. Obviously, it gets shown a lot more than in Half Mum. Yeah, I think that the reputation of it is still pretty high. And I think that if you went out into the street and said hi de hi to anybody apart from yourself, then the automatic reaction you get back from anybody over the age of probably 35 would be, hoody ho! You see, I was thinking that its reputation is solid, but it's not quite up there. I mean, there's the first division. Well, let's not try and divide it into first division, second division, and things like that, because they all kind of fade into one another. But it's not quite where you'd think it would be if you watch the first few series. First few series, because I saw a while ago people like Mumos on Twitter were saying, you know, th- about how interesting it is, how grim it is in places. And I was thinking, so there's a, a big reevaluation of Heidi High going on. And thinking, why is it not spoken of as one of the great Croft and Perry's? For all that you say that It Ain't Half Up Mum hasn't been repeated as often. It's probably less known, but it probably has a better reputation among people who know it. Because I think Heidi High went on too long. And that's the thing, because I remember Heidi High, I mean, I watched it at the time. It was something that was there to watch. But then when it went away, my memory was, well, it was just a bit of nonsense, wasn't it? And it was, uh, come on, say your catchphrase, go off. Okay, now I'm, I'm not actually speaking directly to yourself here, Till, so you can do whatever you want to do in the next 30 seconds or so. I'm speaking directly to the listeners. You know what it's like when you've said to somebody, oh, you really should see this, and then you put it on the screen and you're watching it with somebody that you've recommended and you just sort of sense that for whatever reason, they're not really getting it. It's like, I'm sure I've told the story before about my old flatmate. I showed her once episode of Faulty Towers and I could just sense within five minutes this she, she's not getting this at all. It's like when she tried to get me interested in Friends. Not the TV show. <laughs> no, 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 no. So when we're doing a Heidi High watch along, I really like in particular, we'll speak about it later on, I really like in particular the first episode of series six because it's just so strange. But we'll come on to that. I'll come to why that is later on. But then Squadron Leader Dempster shows up and what have you. And I can just sense it over Skype. I know that there's something there that Tilt's not into this anymore. <laughs> I also know that we've still got a ton of episodes to go. I don't know, what is this bee in your bonnet you've got about a lovely, lovable, uh, rogue, bounder, scoundrel, cad, Clive Dempster? It's probably my feelings from the time. I don't say I watched every episode as it went out, but I watched a fair chunk, and there were quite a few when I was saying, is this the one where this happens? And sure enough, it happened. And I'd remembered that from 30-some years. It was my unexamined opinion. It wasn't something I turned over in my head a lot, which was, Heidi High, it was okay, but a little bit, but um, tish, do your bit and go, uh, which those first few series is not really uh, entirely fair. I think the first few series are about something. And then my memory was, and then they had to replace Simon Cadell, and they fudged it, and it wasn't quite as good. I still have issues. Now, This probably isn't the place to say this, but watching this, I started to doubt whether we should come back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks very much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. It's been a shorter run than we anticipated. Because... See you later. For the love of all that is clay, Heidi High shouldn't really have this much 
critical <laughs> examination brought to bear upon it. There were just points when I'm looking at it and I'm examining the comedic m- mechanism and the storytelling engine, and then just a little voice in my head said, Come on, it's Heidi <laughs> High. You're not going to win a great victory for humanity by being able to unpick Heidi High and then maybe put it back together. But yes, there was something about Commander Dempster that I think breaks the story to a certain extent, and it's almost like, and I'm, who am I? to criticise Croft and Perry, but it's almost like they didn't put quite enough thought, or what thought they did put in seemed to be misplaced, but when Dempster comes in, it kind of stops being about what it was about. Okay, now hang on, now hang on a minute, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, because we're doing all this bass backward, because we've just finished watching Series 9, but we need to talk about Series 1, first of yeah, all, no, but, and, but, and some other ones. Well, okay, but, but that's what I'm saying, that I'm just laying out ahead. That is the big crux of... This is going to be the big disagreement, I think, between myself and Gary. And that was one of the reasons that we picked Heidi High as well, was there was this thing to talk about. But I might just occasionally start using sledgehammers. In fact, I might start using atom bombs to crack walnuts. That's just it. I've just... If you ask me to think about a thing... I will think about it and maybe overthink it. Hey, nobody comes to the sitcom club for, for just you, Migo. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, classic, eh? Oh, I love him when he does his bit. No, nobody can overthink anything here. This is the whole point about this. This is We're, we're not trying to be fashionable. We're not trying to be trendy. We're not talking about, I don't know, whatever the current in thing is. What is it, Fortnite on Android or Strictly <laughs> or whatever? None of that here. No, it's fun to get really, really in-depth about anything. You want to start at the very beginning, and starting at the very beginning is a way of talking about what appeals to me about Heidi High. It's about something that I don't think is focused on as much as the Second World War, or even, for later, Yurangmalod, the interwar period, things like that. It's about a little period in British history that doesn't have a lot of pop cultural presence and it's really really fascinating to us particularly you know sitcom club but also particularly jaffa cakes of proust it's a new elizabethan thing speak for yourself but anyway okay there may be people listening who have not actually seen heidi high i know that might sound far-fetched but there may be some so let's just give a very quick pricey croft and perry 1980 through to 1988 but over nine series over eight years the actual plot the action takes place just over two years 1959 1960 two seasons in maplin's holiday camp not dissimilar to butlin's holiday resorts and instead of red coats we have yellow coats and we are in post-war britain so britain is enjoying itself again and people are coming to maplin's they're paying a set amount so they're paying their money and then that's it then as far as you know the week is concerned everything is inclusive and they're coming here to have a good time and it's very i suppose you'd say regimented in terms of the the action you've got gladys on the radio radio maplins in the morning telling you okay this is when you're gonna have breakfast and then this is your itinerary and you're expected to take part in all this not compulsory obviously but if you're gonna get the most out of the holiday then this is what you're expected to do 
and the yellow coats will be running around making sure that you're having a good time. We begin, well, it's a bit of an oddity because we don't actually begin at the holiday camp at all. We begin in Cambridge. And we see Geoffrey Fairbrother, who is a professor in archaeology. And he has decided, for good and sufficient reasons, that he wants a change of scenery. He sees things as being just a little bit sort of dull and samey where he is. And so he takes this seemingly sort of random job as entertainment manager. And we discover later on that the owner of Maplin's, Joe Maplin, tends to like people who are sort of educated, perhaps from a, either an academic or a military background. He likes those kind of people to be in managerial positions. And this straight away sets him at odds with Ted Bovis, who is the camp comedian, he's a camp host, and he's been there, I think at this point, for 14 years, and he's got his eye on that job. But as it happens, he's also got his eye on this new little drama series which is being made up at Granada, and he's going for an audition there. The opening show, the, the pilot, because it was a pilot for the, what eventually became the series, it's a really, really strong pilot, isn't it? Everything it gets across in the space of just 40 minutes. And it, it leaves you wanting more. You know that sometimes you get that sense when you watch things like, you know, Comedy Playhouse, you watch individual pilots, and sometimes you're sort of sitting there thinking, I don't really see how they could stretch this to six episodes. But straight away, you think, yeah, this has got longevity in it. It's a real strong payoff as well. It's also got something inbuilt as well, which a lot of the very best sitcoms have, and that is it has the capacity for people to come and go. So you've got a constant stream of holiday makers and you've got a long season ahead of you. So, for example, you know, say in Porridge, you've got prisoners coming and going. In Faulty Towers, you've got guests coming and going and so on and so on. It's got all the nice little makings of traditional David Croft and Jimmy Petty slash Jeremy Lloyd ensemble piece. So you've got a core group of people. Everybody gets their few minutes in they all come into the offices, and so we're introduced to Fred Quilly, the jockey. We're introduced to Mr. Partridge, the Punch and Judy man, played by Leslie Dwyer, who we've previously mentioned on Jaffa Cakes, a well-known film star, British films in the 40s and 50s and what have you. We've got our yellow coats. We've got our camp comic, who is Spike, and he's sort of under Ted's wing, so he has recently decided to take up the footlights, so to speak. He was working in the income tax office, but he wants to have a crack at show business. We've got Gladys, who is the sort of chief yellow coat. She's going to keep them all in line. We've got Vaughn and Barry, who are the former ballroom champions. And we also have Peggy. The interesting thing is that Peggy actually initially doesn't like the expression potty shally made. She actually argues back against that. And then later on, she actually agrees with it and just admits, yes, I am potty. She um, becomes more sort of hyper as the years go on, or the series go on, as we'll eventually get to. As far as I can tell, everybody is more or less good at their jobs, including the misfit, Jeffrey Fairbrother. That's one thing I like. It, it comes out clearer later. There are aspects of the job that he's no good at. But there is a bit that comes out later that he's in line for a promotion. He's doing a good job. Be really easy to turn him into Gordon Britters and have the whole place being chaotic. But no, it's functioning about as well as a holiday camp can function. 
So that's okay. That's one thing because you know people say sitcoms are all about people who are trapped. Well, yes and no. I suppose Ted isn't quite where he'd like to be as a comedian. There's that threat hanging over Spike that he'll never amount to anything more, but he's only starting out. Nobody else is really trapped. Frequently still working with horses. Okay, Mr. Partridge hates children. Maybe he's a bit trapped, but Gladys, most of the yellow coats, they're doing what they're meant to be doing. This is fulfilling work for them. You can argue that they are trapped in as much as they're in sort of close proximity to each other all the time, even in the chalets, which are But they're just tiny. in jobs. They, the, yes, they, they could, are, yeah. if they really wished, they could actually resign and go away. There's nothing stopping them. They are not in desperate situations. Okay, it would have been kind of fun if just for one episode they'd had a guest appearance by Petra McGowan. That didn't happen, <laughs> so let's move on. And it's also about class. But... Again, it's about class in a very interesting way. And this is why Jeffrey Fairbrother's the linchpin that makes Heidi High a bit more interesting in that he has seen the big dream. Can we say post-war settlement? I mean, is that going too far? No, I don't think so. So we're coming out of the post-war settlement and we're heading towards white heat of technology. You've never had it so good. I am not a crook. No, hang on. I'm just going through political catchphrases, you silly Billy. Bigly. Anyway, I don't know. I, f I just find 1959-1960 a very attractive dream time. I'm probably getting some stuff mixed up. I always think of, I think of it in terms of this funny little period of uh, slab serif fonts <laughs> and a bleak font. That BBC logo. Not the one with the slanted boxes, the one with the oblique letters, but the square boxes. I don't know. Just sort of say something's no, I'm, I'm much happening. Much the, something's I'm happening in the, the world. Yeah, well, whatever. But and just, just that, <laughs> that you, you've got to admit, it gives you a kind of a feel of what. So ITV has managed to change certain things. I don't know. I can't quite get it into words. I know what you mean. I I know what you mean. I mean, I think fifty nine sixty. 61, I think that they are fondly remembered years from the people who were there. Later on in the 60s, things get a little bit more serious, things like the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then all of the sort of turmoil in the late 60s, backdrop of Vietnam and so on. Yeah, I think that the late 50s and very early 60s, you've got the end of rationing in the years beforehand, and now you've just got this lovely period where people can actually get back to enjoying their lives. And we've got a bit of a sense of social mobility and social cohesion. So Jeffrey Fairbrother has looked at the world as it is, and it's partially been some of the class structure has been loosened simply by having to have worked together during the war. Then there was the Labour government trying to create this perfect socialist welfare state, or, well... People now say Clement Attlee was a melt, so what do I know? <laughs> but he's looked at that and found it very exciting, and he wants to get to know the real people. And it breaks some rules there. Uh, like, Dad's Army is partially driven by George Mannering's lower middle class rage. 
that despite being the captain, despite being the manager, he is outclassed by his sergeant, his assistant manager. He hasn't quite got the status he thinks he deserves. There's just something about him he can't hide. Okay, now is this going to be too far-fetched? But I've got something at the back of my mind here, and it's going to lead to a conversation that we had when we were watching these. Okay, let's take a few steps back. So let's go back, say, 14 years. Okay. Post-war, prediction was that Churchill would be re-elected. Retrospectively, now, many historians argue, oh, it was clearly the will of the people that, okay, Churchill saw us through the war, but Attlee and the Labour government were people that were seen as best placed to rebuild. You can then argue that from 51 onwards, that with those bits and pieces in place, with the welfare state in place, with the NHS in place, the Conservatives were seen as the best people to manage. This leads us to where we've got Jeffrey Fairbrother as the entertainment manager. Because Joe Maplin wants people who are from a certain background. He likes professors, academics, and he likes military types. These are the people that he wants in particular positions of authority because he sees them as people who get the job done and don't necessarily overspend and don't fold when there's a crisis in the offing. They've got stiff upper lip, all that kind of thing. Remember when you said to me early on, why don't they just have Peggy be a yellow coat? She's really keen for it. All the campers yes. love her. Why not? And it was within a matter of, I think, minutes of you saying that, that that exact situation was addressed in the show. Joe Maplin wanted well-spoken ladies uh, who were sort of the kind of ladies who'd been through sort of deportment classes. One of the yellow coats talks about how she was asked to recite a piece of Shakespeare in front of Joe Maplin when she went for her audition. I think there's something in this about people from a certain background were entrusted to have an air of authority. So even though the holiday makers are there to have a good time, you know, customers always right, they're the people that are there to serve and to entertain and so on. At the same time, every time Ted Bova says, you know, and this is the truth, folks, our entertainment manager used to be a real life university professor, he gets a round of applause. There's a certain amount of just automatic sort of respect there that comes from the campers. That sort of way of thinking, I think, fits in with the general social makeup of Britain at this time. Macmillan's premiership is highly spoken of from people across the whole of the political spectrum. It's something that then latterly starts to be chipped away at gradually when sort of Wilson comes in and there's an attempt at sort of modernising and an attempt to create something. He didn't use the expression classless society, but there's an attempt to sort of create that kind of atmosphere. And then as time goes on, of course, the class structure starts to become somewhat more liquid and then people become upwardly mobile, so on and so on. But at this particular period of time, people from a certain background had not necessarily automatic respect given to them, but they just had an air of authority and an air of, okay, this person is uh, a good soul. This person is just going to be just right for this position. And of course, this is what winds up Ted no end because Ted does know the camp inside out Ted knows Maplin's camp better than anyone he, he knows it better even than Joe Maplin would 
particularly as he knows all the fiddles because he invented most of them. So he could argue that if it was a meritocracy, then he should be in that chair. But we know that that's just not how it is at this particular time. Yeah, so there is a little class tension, but it's not as focused on it as other famous sitcoms are. And even though Jeffrey embarrasses himself because he, he can't perform and he can't deliver lines, he, he can't show enthusiasm, he does at least want to be engaged with all this. He's not contemptuous. He's not really that much of a misfit. So I like that. And I li- that's the thing. It really engages me what the show is about. It's about some different things. It's about some things you don't normally see, particularly even in historical sitcoms. It's about a nice man who's good at his job, but things happen that make him look ridiculous and things happen that he has to deal with. You've got that lovely vehicle. You've got that lovely method in the pilot of conveying how ill at ease Jeffrey is. He, he wants to do well. I mean, he's, he's chosen to take this role. It wasn't like a situation where he suddenly found himself having to take on paid employment outside of his comfort zone. He's, he's chosen to do this himself. We have an entire week's worth of entertainment all compressed into the space of about 90 seconds, and it's all done beautifully. It's just photographs. And you've got photographs of the different events happening, and in every single one, everybody is having gay old time everybody is enjoying themselves and laughing to the hill and there somewhere in the frame is going to be jeffrey he doesn't look bored he doesn't look as if he doesn't want to be there he just doesn't fit he's out of his natural habitat sometimes he looks bemused and sometimes he just seems generally ill at ease but nonetheless he decides to stick it out. He comes close to, to leaving in the end of that first week, but he decides to stick it out. And of course, once he's sticking it out, then he sticks it out for the entire year, which of course in, in episodic terms is five series. Let's talk about sexual frustration. <laughs> <laughs> this is not an advert, by the way. This isn't one of those sponsor things where we're going to be trying to sell you some blue pills it's one or something. trying to sell you a new mattress, isn't it? <laughs> What's the name of that Ruth Bozzy character? You know, with the hairnet. See, I can remember Tyrone F. Horney, as they have to call him, but I can't remember the name of her character. You know the one I mean. No, I don't. What, what, what are we on about? We're talking about Ro- Ruth Bozzy and Rona Martin's laughing. Oh, okay. You know the character with the hairnet? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Or yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Dick Emery's old dear with the uh, wingy glasses. So, sexual frustration, that constant shaking slightly frightened slightly aroused so gladys ruth maddock doesn't go there ruth maddock plays gladys pew like marilyn monroe sitting on top of a washer that's off balance she's quivering the entire time it's fantastic yeah it's really (laughs) interesting way of doing it. The problem is, I think you've always got a problem, though, if you've set yourself up with will they, won't they. Well, we'll come to that later. I think that creates a problem later on. I guess they'd play that Jeffrey's kind of oblivious, or he's pretending to be oblivious. But he does like Gladys. I also like the fact that Jeffrey likes Peggy. You can tell that if it were up to him, she would have the yellow coat. I don't know why. Again, it just seems... 
like something that a less skilled writer wouldn't have. It's something that I think somebody who was a little bit more workmanlike than Croft and Perry wouldn't have thought to have put in. Just that little reflection that the dividing lines are not necessarily neat. And also, it kind of makes sense that for the person at the top and the person at the bottom to be fond of each other. Yeah, uh, it, it would be very easy for the entertainment manager to be so distant from the everyday staff. Okay, this is stretching things somewhat, but I'm going to say it anyway. Okay, Brian Clough. Brian Clough as a manager had the ethos that even though he was at the top of the tree, when he came into a club on his first day, he should introduce himself to everyone at the club. Not just the players, but all the staff, no matter how, quotation marks, lowly the staff were. People in the laundry room and the people running the sort of kiosk and so on. He believed that he should introduce himself to every single one of them and know them all by name because it was a family, it was a unit. And I think there's something about that in Jeffrey. He certainly doesn't give himself airs and graces. Ted obviously tries to sort of put him down because, you know, he's saying, oh, you're privileged and so on. But Jeffrey, there's none of that about him at all. The only time actually that you see him get really angry, apart from if Ted is really on the fiddle and he's angered about the fact that he's getting away with so much. But the only time that you see Jeffrey really sort of furious is when a fellow member of the aristocracy has designs on his soon-to-be ex-wife when they're having their back and forth. Then Jeffrey's mad because he's almost got license to do that. Whereas I think that ordinarily he is exceptionally careful about how he comes across to everybody on the camp. Ted walks a line and I find occasionally I lose all sympathy with him just occasionally. I guess there's always the reset button, but yeah, he's bent. Go on, just mention some of the scams he gets up to before that episode. (laughs) (laughs) Ted, as a matter of course, has fiddles that he will run repeatedly because bear in mind he's got a changing audience every single week so he's able to reuse the same fiddles every single week so for example he will drop a hint that it is his birthday one particular week and he'll make sure that the loud mouth who is in that particular week's contingent knows that fact so that then he'll spread it around the camp and of course he'll then receive lots of presents and so on. He has illicit games of bingo and raffles which he runs sort of in the camp but sort of in in quiet corners where he can get away with it. He has a rigged tombola so he can always make sure that he knows what number is coming out. He has managed to ensnare other people into his misdeeds as well. So that he can use what about if So if Jeffrey puts someone on the spot and says, "Okay, what were you up to there and then?" He can say, "Ah, but have you seen what you know Barry and Yvonne are up to? Have you seen what Fred Quilly's doing?" So on and so on, because he knows all their little scams, and probably he was the one who put them up to it in the first place. Spike is the one who pushes back on all this. Doesn't at any point he he never bends his principles, let alone breaks them. He he's a very decent, upright person and under Ted's guidance he could very easily be corrupted but he doesn't let that to happen he always pushes back. Spike does eventually get pompous though doesn't he? I don't know I feel there's like a shift he gets a new catchphrase I don't recall it being in there from the beginning oh dear 
Oh dear, oh dear. Oh dear, that there just seems to be a point where Spike gets more automatically written. He can be pious later on, yeah. But it makes sense that the characters, generally speaking, do change a little bit over the course of nine series because, particularly in Spike's case, this is his first run at Maplin's. And so it would be bizarre if he was exactly the same at the end of 1960 than he was right at the, the outset in 59. Having seen what everybody's getting up to, having seen how the camp can frequently be a place full of cynicism, I suppose, to always be the person who's trying to be the optimist. In okay, you want that. to talk about cynicism? Yeah, let's talk about cynicism. Peggy. Mm. I think sometimes Peggy's there for unearned pathos. She feels like she's written as a breakout character and that also she's there for people to feel sorry for. And I don't know, just occasionally, and I think this becomes more of a thing as the series goes on, there's some cynical pathos going on, which I think became a big issue, different series, but you rang the Lord. I think after a while there was this almost like we're too good for comedy. Like every episode becomes that episode of Dad's Army with Carmen Silvera. Now here's the thing about Peggy. The only thing I would disagree with you there is the idea that she's written as a breakout part. You could say that as far as the series is concerned. As far as the pilot is concerned, Peggy's role is very small. She comes in early on and she's just basically explaining to Jeffrey the, the ins and outs and explaining there's not going to be any hot water until, you know, the, the campers arrive and you, know, you need to hold on to your basin plug because, you know, they'll, they'll get pinched otherwise. She's only in that scene for about three minutes, but she absolutely supered, absolutely just grabs a spotlight and makes that her own. It's quite surprising to see just somebody make such an impression and a pilot with, with such a, a relatively small part as well, that it, it then sort of guarantees that she's going to have a huge role come the series. Peggy can sometimes be the, the foil. She's very easily duped by Ted. Her ambition to become a yellow coat. This is the thing, okay? How are we on spoilers on this show? Is there actually any need to discuss what happens right at the very end? I mean, I don't know if it's actually necessary, is it? Spoiler space! Here's some spoiler space. No, no, no. What do you, go what away. Do you, what do you mean spoilers? Go away. No, what do you mean spoilers? Go away. Okay, have you all gone away? They've all gone away, Gary. No, but you would want to come back in like a minute. I thought when you said that, I thought you meant like at the end of the show. They're not going to go away and then watch all nine series and then come back. Although you could do that because your podcasting device probably will just remember where you left off. Okay, so Peggy's ambition to become a yellow coat sometimes leads her to be somewhat more naive because she's a somewhat starstruck. And so she'll sort of fall for Ted's ridiculous scams and his explanations as to why she's required to do a particular thing, whatever it may be. One of the most dramatic episodes is when there is a proposal to build a hospital nearby Maplin's and Joe Maplin wants it stopped and Peggy is talked into assisting with the plan to disrupt the visit by the local officials to survey the area and she's been sold a pup by Ted. He's come up with this ridiculous story about why they need to do what they're going to do. And, of course, the other yellow coats think that she's just 
been willing to completely abandon her principles and do anything for the sake of being a yellow coat even for an hour. It's one of the few times within the series when you really get a sort of divide within the camp. You actually get, you know, like, real bad blood between them. We've spoken before about in the sitcom universe, generally speaking, people can say things which, if it was in a drama, could be the premise for deep-seated resentment that could last for hours, days, weeks, months, years. And yet in a sitcom, people can say things which are just completely forgotten about straight afterwards, even though they'd be quite hurtful in real life. But this is an unusual occurrence of something which is much more raw, it's much more real. I guess when I say cynicism, there just seem to be points when she's saying, I will get that yellow coat that's meant to draw the audience's sympathy. Well, what's wrong with that? In a slightly mechanical way. Let's take a, a moment to consider the other characters. Fred Quilly, writing instructor, Felix Bonesse. And he's he's brilliant. What I really like about Fred is the fact that his situation is effectively self-inflicted. I mean, it's a quite a tragic tale, but he's allowed himself to be used as a pawn in a bent horse race, and he's paying the price for it now. He's had his license removed, and he's having to sort of slum it in a way when he really shouldn't be having to. Now, admittedly, he's probably getting on in years for being a sort of top-level jockey, but nonetheless... It's an interesting tale because whereas everyone else, as Ted at one point describes everybody, he says that they're the has-beens and the, the nobodies and so on. Whereas Fred has been relatively advanced in terms of where he was on sort of the pecking order in horse racing, and it's quite a tragic tale. But as a character mainly, I know he does have an episode focused on him, but as a character mainly, he's a good... Phyllis sounds more judgmental. He's a good character just to have to deliver a laugh line. He's a well-drawn character, so anything he says that's funny can be perfectly in character, which, of course, always makes a gag funnier. We were talking to Tyler the other day about Laurel and Hardy and saying how you have to spend time with them, like Morecambe and Wise, because after a while it becomes funny, not just because what they're doing, but you know them so well, you know what they're thinking while they're doing it, and that makes it just a little bit sweeter. Characters like Fred... And we'll come to Mr. Partridge. They're just well drawn enough that any laugh line that comes out of their mouth will just be that little bit richer. So that's principally what Fred is for. Okay, so let's talk about Mr. Partridge then. So Mr. Partridge is a good example of what you were saying earlier on about how it would be easy to have Jeffrey as Mr. Brutus, for example. One thing I really like about Mr. Partridge's character is that pretty much everything that he says is actually true. In terms of his past, he constantly talks about, I worked with all the greats, you know, I performed for King George, you know, top the bill, the, the Holborn Empire and what have you. But it's actually all true. And at one point, Ted makes out that Partridge is telling tall tales. But Spike then comes back and says, no, it's true. He's shown me his scrapbooks. At first, you're sort of expecting there to be a twist in there. You're sort of expecting it to be that, that actually he was sort of puffing up his past. But no, he's not. As you said yourself, I think that, you know, largely because of his intense alcohol consumption, he is probably the closest you've got there to somebody who's a sort of prisoner, so to speak, because he's had a, a pretty glorious career and now finds himself sort of reduced to this set of circumstances. And he's also, in a strange way, he's also quite often 
the most sensible voice in the room when they're having their staff meetings and so on. And he'll chip in with something and he'll sort of point out, you know, um, this has been tried before or I think you're on sticky wicket here or whatever. Quite often he's the one that seems to have the least axe to grind. He doesn't play favourites. He's not trying to sort of play one off against the other or trying to big up his own situation. He'll just sort of point something out based upon his He has this other little characteristic. I haven't written any of them down. He'll just say things that are factual but are effectively non sequiturs. And I can't remember any of them now. I didn't think to write any of them down. (laughs) But he'll talk about a particular manoeuvre at a battle or something, or some historical fact. It's just really peculiar. It doesn't fit in with the two-dimensional personality, which is fine. Two dimensions is sometimes all you need, of he's a punch and duty man, he hates children. They're just given this little extra bit that will cause a discussion to go slightly off topic. And finally, we have, for this part, we have Avon and Barry Stewart Hargreaves. They're more typical of sitcom, snobbery sitcom class issues. That's perfectly fine. And Barry Howard's just brilliant with them. Yes, yes. Um, in fact, I think sometimes he has too many lines. I think he should have been on the same rule as Paul Eddington in Yes Minister. <laughs> Barry doesn't have to say this line if he doesn't want to. Because <laughs> it's peculiar. He looks down on all the other staff occasionally, but then he will pull Yvonne down. He will occasionally betray a bit of knowledge of a certain kind of slang or argo, or he will explain a euphemism just to get a rise out of her. To an extent, he looks down on the rest of the staff, but I get the impression that Barry is actually a really, really nice guy when you get past that sort of veneer that he's got. When he's away from Avon, when he's just with the other campers, I think that, yeah, he can't help his outlook because if you were with Avon... 24 hours a day, it would be absolutely crushing. It would be horrible. Is he the one who makes a reference to Hamburg? I've just got written down here Hamburg reference. Somebody mentions Hamburg in the sense of, okay, fine, Croft and Perry lived through it. But again, it's just that nice little bit of historical verisimilitude that that's (laughs) what they'd mention. People at that time, in that position, if they want to go for the name of a city that indicates decadence and sex work and drugs hamburg is the one they'd mention the strange thing is that and in all honesty i think it's astonishing that barry didn't do a runner earlier on well this is my problem with heidi eye goes on too long because when you have to start replacing people there are only so many ways you can replace them and sometimes you can do it in a way that does violence to the character as we know them it might be the way real life works but Damn it. I liked Barry, and they had him do something that made me like him less. This is a spoiler alert, is it? Yes, this is a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! 30 second rule applies. Okay, so Barry Howard's character was written out of the last two series, and as a result, he just scarpers one morning and leaves Yvonne by herself. And his role is then taken by article Ben Aris, who plays a character from Yvonne's past. And they're then together as a dancing couple for the last couple of series. But it's... The problem is, is that the end of the series before has Barry and Yvonne are closer than ever. They have this colossal, horrible row at the beginning of the episode. 
And right at the end, it's like, oh, they do love one another. And not on account, oh, they can get along. It's like, no, actually, there's genuine tenderness between them. But anyway, he left. When you mention that huge row that Avon and Baddy have, it leaves something sort of hanging in the air that's never referred to again and not developed. Yes. The, the fact that Baddy married Avon because she was two months pregnant, not by Baddy. And he shouts us out the window, she was two months gone. He's shouting to the rest of the, the campus. That's a good that example of Barry being vulgar to annoy Yvonne. The child in question is never referred to before or since. Now, okay, now here's the thing. We did actually say right at the outset, there's no such thing as there's too much detail on this show. This is, this is what we do here. So I'm going to ask all listeners now to get comfortable uh, maybe, you know, just put us on pause, make a cup of tea and take the phone off the hook so you don't want any distractions now because Tilt is now going to give us a blow-by-blow, scene-by-scene account of the entire, the entire appearance of Heidi High at the Royal Variety Performance in 1983. Go! Peggy comes on and says some things. I don't know, I only watched it once. And uh, she's brushing, and then the entire cast come on and start brushing. That's she comes on and she it. says, look at the state of this stage. Oh, I'm going to need some help. And then everybody comes out, and they all start brushing, and it's done within about 15 seconds. <laughs> Characters leaving, doing damage. Come on. Because we've got to deal with it. Uh, we're far enough in. We've got five series with Simon Cadell. And as Ruth Maddock explained in an interview some years after the end of the show, Simon Cadell had indicated two years previously that he was going to leave. And so Penny and Croft obviously knew and Ruth Maddock was aware, but this was otherwise kept secret. Simon Cadell obviously went on to have many performances on, particularly on the stage, and had other screen roles as well. But his departure, what would have been nice would have been if there'd been something along the lines of, say, Last of Summer Wine when Foggy leaves and immediately there turns up Seymour straight away to replace him and both actors are in the scene. This doesn't happen in this case. Series 6 opens. I I really, really like this opening episode of Series 6 because as I mentioned to yourself beforehand, it's almost like, okay, so as we're speaking just now, we're about, what is it, two weeks away from the start of Doctor Who? Yes, absolutely. We're going with my idea then. What they should have done. What? So my idea is because, so this is my issue is that no, no, the way no, he no, leaves no, no, is, is no, kind no, of inelegant. No. And what they really should have done is, right, okay, pre-credit sequence for series six and uh, we're in the desert and it says Egypt 1960 or whatever. And uh, there's Simon Cadell and there's a friend. And he's saying, well, th- thanks so much for inviting me along. I mean, obviously I'm going to have to uh, make my move, get back to England because it's nearly time for the summer season at Maplin's, but this, this has just been wonderful to be here and to see all this. I, I, I can't really go back to archaeology, but just thank you so much. And, uh, well, should we crack this open? Now, what does that say? The curse of... I can't make that out. The name of some sort of goddess figure, I think. Well, crack it open. Flash of lightning! And uh, Simon Cadell has been replaced by Selena Cadell. <laughs> And that's it. She will play Jeffrey Fairbrother for the rest of the series. Obviously, yeah. I mean, as we've seen with Doctor Who, some people will be annoyed. That was not what I was going to suggest. No. Okay. No, what I was going to suggest was, okay, so you know that Doctor Who is going to start on 7th of October. 
But let's say you were told, in secrecy, if you type in this number on the EPG on Sunday night, two weeks before then, you can see everybody that's in Doctor Who. They're all going to be there. They're going to be on the screen at 7 o'clock. They're not going to be ready for a couple of weeks. That's you know the, sh- the show is going to begin on 7th of October. But if you want to say hello and just you know see them all, maybe they might be re- sort of rehearsing and what have you. And probably the entire cast won't be there yet because they haven't all arrived. But you know if you want to say hello, then just tap on the CBG number and there will be. That's what Heidi High shows one and two season six are like because Squadron Leader Dempster hasn't arrived yet, and we're sort of allowed to eavesdrop in a way. There's no. But holidaymakers there either. The camp hasn't opened yet. The camp doesn't open until episode three. So instead, you've got all of this time with them slowly all arriving back. You don't even have like a full slate of yellow coats there yet. Everybody's arriving at the train station and they're all catching up with each other. And I've never really seen anything like this in any other show, to be honest. It, it's a really unusual atmosphere. Yeah, it's, it's one that I actually find very pleasant. If I'm going somewhere, if I'm going to a particular like event or whatever it is, I always like to get there like exceptionally early. I like to sort of find my bearings well in advance. So if I can get somewhere maybe like a day before and just sort of work out where I am and what I'm doing before everybody else arrives, then I'm sort of happy there. So in a way, it was sort of like, yeah, this this is lovely. It would always be nice to just have an episode zero on a DVD box set of everything. Imagine if you suddenly discovered there was like an episode zero of Step Two and Son. There's not going to be a lot of plot points in it, but you're just going to see them in the yard, just yapping away to each other and what have you. Or imagine if you'd seen, in a way, sort of Prisoner and Escort, Porridge, the pilot, is a little bit like that. But, I mean, I said to yourself when we were watching these, I said, oh, imagine if you'd seen Porridge before the prisoners arrived. And it was just, you know, Mackay and Barraclough and the rest of them talking about what to expect. And he's saying, oh, there's this one Fletcher, you want to keep an eye out for him. You know, he's, he's done a lot of burden, what have you. But there's not actually any prisoners there. <laughs> So the the upshot of this is that they're all back at the holiday camp when Gladys discovers that Jeffrey isn't coming back. And he does this by simply leaving a note. Now, your point about this was that you felt that this was, this is out of character for Jeffrey, that he would have made contact with Gladys and that she would have been aware of this before she arrived back. It's weird that they had two years warning and didn't decide to write him out properly. And it's the kind of thing you do when you're angry at someone where a character's been written out in such a way that it's like, oh, yeah, and by the way. And that's what this feels like. Gladys is heartbroken. And it makes you think, wow, that was was cold, Jeffrey. That was not a nice move at all. And it would have been better to have everybody know, or at least have Gladys know. And this sense that, you know, he's moved on and she's made her peace with the idea everything's fine now. Okay, let's get on with the season. So, yeah, it just rings false to me. And it's one of the side effects of when something goes on. And we've mentioned Barry leaving. Barry actually leaves after Jeffrey. And then uh, Leslie Dwyer couldn't continue, so he gets replaced. And I don't know, after a while you think, is this going to end up like the Sugar Babes? So it's like it's like a sort of one of the Washington's X triggers broom Theseus's ship, yeah. One of the variants of Box Fizz without any original members of the the foursome. The the situation with Leslie Dwyer is is somewhat awkward because similar to James Beck in Dad's Army, uh, Leslie Dwyer had already completed the film sequences. 
for that series, uh, but then was Elm was unable to continue. Oh, and there was the... one bit where they were just walking along the outside of the chalets, and I thought they were just going to turn right and walk into a room and be on videotape, and Mr. Partridge would just have magically disappeared, but it, it didn't happen. <laughs> no, my issue with Commander Dempster is that effectively we've now got two Teds. And you don't need two Teds unless you play school. And even then, let's face it, little Ted, bit of a jobber, isn't he? Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on a second. It was a carry job. (laughs) You're not having to go a little Ted. What's he done to anybody? We were saying it, well, if we really wanted to run away with the idea we were talking about post-war reconstructions, like, yeah, and then it gets replaced with somebody who's posh and corrupt and on the make. It's the end of the idealism. But no, (laughs) that's not what they were saying. That's not what they were deliberately doing. But I just think it throws the whole thing off balance. And of course, he doesn't even get in the opening title. So there's that feeling that we now know everybody else well enough that we don't... Hang on, hang on, hang on. The opening titles and trivia, trivia point, who the opening title sung by? Some guy. Ken Barry, Postman Pat. Not Paul Shane. The opening titles have space for four names, for goodness sake, and they weren't going to have David Griffin who's come in playing Clive Dempster. They weren't going to have him suddenly leapfrog everybody else in the picking order, so it's just the way it is. But it indicates his being less essential to the story. It's a similar situation to Mr. Lucas in Are You Being Served? He was the focus of attention in the first series, and then later on it becomes more of an ensemble piece, and that's what's happened with Heidi High. Yeah, but I just find the fact that he's a charmer, but he's untrustworthy, he's on the make, he's a schnorrer, I find that strikes this really sour note in the entire thing now, that we've had the idealistic character replaced with a cynical character... And will they, want they? I don't care. In fact, no, I don't want this to happen. I want Gladys to uh, see through him and go at him with a garlic press. Okay, I've got two issues with this. I'm going to speak up. Yeah, one issue is you're a contrarian who always wants to turn this into a fight. No, no, no. You know, we have like nice little discussions and you bring in adjudicators to say, oh, well, I'm not going to accept. Accept, accept. Who's talking about accepting? We're just talking. This is not Siskel and Ebert. Hang on. Right, okay. One, I'm going to say I don't think that Clive Dempster is cynical. He is in a quandary. He's got his situation with his family and what have you, who want to arrange his entire life for him and he doesn't want that. And yes, he's a bit of a chancer and a charmer and so on. But... And he's perfectly fine with the idea of drugging innocent people. Well, no, we're, we're going to come to that. We're going to come to that episode. The other thing... When you say that Gladys should see through him, Gladys does see through him. She sees through him perfectly. Well, she she knows that he's she he, she knows that he's shiftless and he's not doing a particularly good job in terms of he's not really putting in very much okay, effort. We're, and so we're on. arguing two separate points in some ways, though. But what, what, what the thing the thing is so that when you say that she should see through him again, one thing I like about his character is the fact that he's not... I think I'm okay to use a mild expletive. We have got the explicit tag on Sitcom Club. He's not a bullshitter. Because that's what you start to think when he arrives. As far as money's involved. Oh, I don't seem to have my wallet on me. Can I borrow... No, no, I might as well take the other ten. No, but the thing is that early on, you're sort of thinking all this business about 
squadron leader and he had all those nighttime raids and he got the DFC and what have you. All oh, this is just going to be BS. He's, he's, he's going to be exposed. He's going to be exposed, man. He's going to be exposed for the liar that he is. But actually he isn't because it's all true. And they consult Burks and, and there he is. And I like the fact that, again, they don't go for like the, the sort of the easy option because it would have been really easy to have him sort of puff up his RDF career and what have you. But he's actually quite honest with Gladys. He, he says about how he was always terrified going out on night raids and what have you. So he is actually a war hero. That, that bit is absolutely true. He, he is a cad and a bounder he's, and so th- on. Well, that's the thing. Those are two major blocking points. Having a cad and a bounder at the top spoils it for me. So you don't have to replace idealistic with cynical, because I will say that he is essentially cynical. He's on the make. And I was saying that they should have actually had somebody come along who's a bit more red brick and a bit duffel-coated. You're reflecting another little part of what was happening in society. You have somebody who's still sort of idealistic, but from a different place. He's not necessarily going down. He's looking across. He's a bit Granada-minded. When that is occasionally where he'll trip up, he gets a little bit too, this is for the people, and will have to be walked back from some of his ideas. I was thinking David Roper, because also you can have little bits where he just looks out the window and gives a little monologue. But okay, let's talk about the episode where they slaughter the campers. (laughs) Christmas 85, which I think I actually argued on a previous podcast, was... I actually argued it was the last really, 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 really bloody good Christmas on television because it's an outstanding lineup, And it really is. I mean, 85, BBC One, Heidi High, an hour, hour and a half, only fools and horses, and two runnies, Christmas night. That's a bloody good lineup. You're not going to get any better than that. And then next year, it's like EastEnders turns up and spoils everything. Before we have Del Boy and his slightly dubious diamond smuggling operation, we have diamonds also factoring in the high high Christmas special, in which we're not embellishing. We're not okay. We must not embellish this in any way. Okay, this is what happens. There is a suggestion that there might be a precious set of diamonds on camp from a cat burglar who had previously stayed at the camp, and they decide they're going to go looking for principally Ted, and of course Dempster goes along with it. Spike doesn't know anything about it, so on and so on. And they decide that they're going to have to go looking for this, even though it's in the middle of the season. And they suspect that it might be in one of the chalets, which means having to sort of empty it, take up the floorboards and so on. How do you do that without the campers finding out? You drug them. So you get Yvonne's sleeping tablets and pop them in everybody's cocoa and just basically knock out an entire wing of the chalet and then move them out as they're asleep and move all the furniture out and then take up all the floorboards. Is this an acceptable break with reality? Because it was still in my head that that is a massively dangerous thing to do, to give anybody a drug they've not been prescribed, and particularly a sleeping drug. I just couldn't quite get that out the back of my head. The rules of this particular sitcom universe are, that's okay. Okay, yes, it is a bit of an eye-opener, this one. I I remember thinking this was a bit of an eye-opener the first time I saw it. No, I just think it's the sign of a show that's in trouble, that it's being so cavalier with its characters, and then we end up, the shows go on as the series come and go. Uh, We have an episode that's just Corporal Jones and the assault course with an element of that dad's army where 
they had Barbara Windsor as a sharpshooter. So there's a hidey high, and it's like this is not really to do with being a holiday camp. There's a little hand wave as to why they're doing an assault course against the Marines. So no, I think they ran out of ideas before it ended. You've got the uh, and that's my point. That's the what the modern mystery. Yeah, that's not a satisfying ending either. So I think that's why Heidi High is not as highly regarded as you might think it would be if you only started at the beginning and stopped partway through, because eventually it did just become a bit of a comedy sausage machine. Ted can't hear you, oh dear, oh dear. I will get me that yellow coat. Okay, I do like it. The last episode, because sometimes when something's not really holding my attention... I start suggesting preposterous things that could happen, and one of them happened. So, spoilers for the last episode, people. Here's your spoiler space. Be not near the spoilers. Okay, right, they're gone. In the last episode, Peggy gets her yellow coat and throws herself into it <laughs> and has a nervous breakdown. And there's actually a bit where they're putting her on a stretch. She's going, I can't I've got a yellow coat. And it's like, Gordon Bennett, that's like <laughs> a bizarre <laughs> parody of, of <laughs> taking it beyond its logical conclusion. I found that quite amusing, if mildly disturbing, that it's like it turns out that that's what was going to happen to her. Well, the thing is that, that it is actually alluded to earlier on, aside from the fact that Joe Mappen has a certain image as, as, as far as how the yellow coat should be. Gladys also says, she can't make Perry get yellow coat, she'd be hyper. She'd get the, the campers too excited. And that's exactly what ends up happening. Is, is, is that one particular scene where she's like on a chariot or whip and just <laughs> going and it's being carried, yeah, it's been pulled by campers. And I'm just thinking, are they indicating now that she's actually taken off of the camp? <laughs> I don't think we need to reach a conclusion because we have different conclusions. I think what we need to do to wind up is what happened to them afterwards. Well, first of all, I think that we were sort of in agreement that it could have ended at the end of Series 7. Because I know I know you're saying about, you know, you're not a fan of Dempster and what have you, but end of Series 7 just seemed a natural place to sort of pause it because Clive and Gladys just got engaged and we've had that awkward scene between Barry and Yvonne, which is now sort of passed and now suddenly they're, you know, sort of cooing and what have you again. It felt like this could be a sort of conclusion. This could just be a place to pause. There were proposals for a spin-off, weren't there? No. Yeah, no, this is the thing. Because, first of all, we have this suggestion. Well, it's not a suggestion. It's it's actual, actual full-on fact. A sequel was proposed, which was called Laughing All the Way to the End. And this would have seen Ted and Peggy as... Characters, the same characters, and they're trying to keep a variety theatre running at a South Coast resort. And they would have had like a cast of characters in there. They would have had, you know, various entertainers, old time music hall acts who would have been regulars at the place. And they've got antagonists in there as well. Similar in a, in a way to sort of like Bill Pertwee and Dad's Army and, and what have you. You've got other people who perhaps don't want the the place to continue and you've got a counsellor and what have you. And a pilot and two series scripts were written for this. There was also a second version of the pilot in which Spike was cast rather than Ted. 
And ultimately, this didn't happen. There was a suggestion that the BBC didn't particularly want to use the characters elsewhere in case they decided to revive Heidi High in the future because Heidi High done well internationally. As sequels go, or proposed sequels go, it's very well drawn. There's a lot of detail in there. There's plenty of detail, I would suggest, Tilt, for yourself to start knocking out fan fiction of this. So I'd like to see the other four shows in that series, if you could have them ready by this time <laughs> next week, and we'll then dissect them on the show. I think this was a discussion on Twitter. The one thing we did decide is that um, Spike would have ended up at a local ITV station and ended up becoming legendary as a children's host. I know Jeffrey Holden thinks Spike didn't make it. I don't know. I think there were some opportunities. He might not have made it to the very top, but I think he would have worked his way into the hearts of at least a good enough chunk of the population to be remembered fondly. Okay, now this is going to get very meta, but Paul Shane appeared in one of the later series of The Comedians, 79, I think. If he continued for another 10 years or so, after the close of Maplins, if he'd kept on, would Ted Bovis have had a shot of actually getting onto the comedians when it started in 71? As it's so easy to fake, yes. <laughs> there we can produce footage. That's Ted Bovis on the comedians. Job done. This, uh, I want to say it sticks out half a mile. This spin off, I don't like that idea because it's them working in somewhere that's run down. It's them as failures in a way. So, no, I'd like to think that everybody more or less. Made it, except for Fred Quilly, who was eaten by a horse. <laughs> no, that, that, this was an earlier discussion we had about what happened, and I just went, Fred Quilly was eaten by a horse. Spike was eaten by a different horse. <laughs> Ted died when he tried to eat the horse that ate Spike. Does it work out for Gladys and Clive in Australia? No. Do Barry and Vaughn appear on Come Dancing? Um, they're a bit old for that, aren't they? Do they have an age limit on Come Dancing? I just can't think that. Well, I don't know. We'd, we'd have to research come dancing, and there's only so much research. Now, here's the thing. Uh, further reading, viewing, slash listening. Obviously, all of Heidi High is available on DVD. And I know exactly what you're thinking there, Tilt. You're thinking, ah, but the problem with DVDs, especially with a show like this, where it's got loads of music that's been used in it and what have you, there's bound to be edits on the DVDs. You're absolutely correct. There are loads of edits on the DVDs. And so the place to go to find out all about them is the very fine Dirty Feed blog written by the aforementioned Mumus. Now, Mumus has done a great job across four blog posts going through the Heidi High screenings from... BBC Two during Afternoon Classics a few years ago and having a look at the DVD versions and comparing different versions, looking at like edited scenes across the entire run, all nine series. Sometimes you've got the tiniest little edits because it's something that David Croft did. I know it was something he did for Are You Being Served as well, retrospectively making edits for future screenings. It also goes into detail in the blog posts about instances of laughter washing in the shows that we've talked about previously on Sitcom Club, and he's got examples, audio examples on the site as well. And my favourite bit of this entire sequence of posts was he's got the repeat schedule for the 2015 batch, and that reveals that who killed Mr. Partridge went out the day before Mr. Partridge was was killed. So the second part of the show ran before the first part. <laughs> they also opened the camp, and then two days later came opening day of the camp in Series 6. Just go to dirtyfeed.org and, and look at the tag Heidi High. 
And also, we mentioned before, but when you said there about Jeffy Holland, his reckoning was that Spike didn't make it as a comedian. The fact that we know that is because Jeffy Holland spoke to ourselves on Sitcom Club a few years ago. And you can find that interview that we did with him. We spoke about Heidi High and, of course, all of his other work. You can find that at sitcomclub.com. And at the aforementioned sitcomclub.com is where you'll find all of our previous shows. You can also find all of our previous Jaffa Cakes of Proust, Jaffa Vills, Jaffa Cake Jukebox. You can find all of them at podnose.com. You can also find all manner of other podcasts, plenty of them there. Thousands of them, in fact. And you can follow ourselves on Twitter. We're at The Sitcom Club. Just look for Sitcom Club on Facebook. You'll find us on there. And if anybody wanted to follow yourself, tell how would, how would they do? So if they want to follow myself, just go looking for Hey Ho Pepsi Co and look for a photograph of Windsor Davis. He's in Confessions of a Driving Instructor. And how would they find yourself, Till? Um, don't. Okay, don't do that. Thank you very much indeed for joining us for the resumption of Sitcom Club. And like I say, Sitcom Club, Jaffa, Jaffa Ville, so on and so on. We're going to be here right through to the end of the year. And so, yes, indeed. Stay tuned and we'll be back next week with another edition of the Sitcom Club.